I'm turning now to the first letter of Peter, chapter 2 and verse 7. First Peter, chapter 2, verse 7. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And our subject now is immeasurable advantages. The great benefits, blessings and advantages of the Christian life, the Christian calling. And we begin here in verse 7 and hopefully we shall work down to verse 10 because there are here some six themes for us to consider. Six particular areas of benefit bestowed by salvation. And these are the key to Christian living. We marvel really when we consider the Apostle Peter. Here he was by the time he writes this epistle, a very seasoned, experienced preacher, an apostle of course, and from his great experience, these are the lessons he brings in this letter. But of course, the letter is given by inspiration of the Spirit of God. You have the wisdom of a seasoned preacher and his illustrations, but taken by the Holy Spirit of God and woven into a message, into a structure which is beyond human composition. It is a marvelous thing that you read these chapters of First Peter and they are plain and direct and you might be tempted to think simple and unadorned and then you look again and you find they are rich with illustrations, the language of illustration and you look yet again and you find running themes worked out and developed not a sub-message intrinsically woven into the fabric of matter here. And you can analyze it and break it up into sections. And here we're going to see six in these five verses, uh, if we make it for time, six great benefits and blessings and themes which the Apostle Peter is inspired to bring. So beginning here, but I'll read from verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. It's a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. And verse 7, Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. And the word translated precious in the Greek indicates honourable, worthy of all praise. He has such virtue and so many glories attached to him. Christ the Lord, unto you therefore which believe, he is worthy of utmost honour. And this brings us then to the first benefit. We have such a Lord, such a Saviour, such a guide in life, the greatest and the first of the benefits 
blessings, treasures, which the Apostle Peter is going to list in these five verses. The preciousness, the honour of Christ and his great virtues. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. He's a supreme Lord and guide. Nobody to be compared with Christ, the God-man who possesses all the divine attributes, equal with the Father and with the Spirit. He is infallible, he is eternal, he is holy, he is altogether wise. He is filled with loving kindness. What a Lord we're brought to trust in, we've been saved by and we serve. You could not have a greater blessing. All the woes and the burdens and the difficulties of life they all pale into insignificance when we think of him. We're children of Christ, saved by him, members of his family, and he is our Lord and our guide and our protector. He is everything to us. What can possibly trouble us so deeply that we are cast down and faith is shaken and we go to pieces when so near to us? We have the Lord of glory. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is worthy of all honour. And actually the theme is continued as Peter turns to negative reflections in verse 7. But unto them which be disobedient, well, that was all of us. That included us before, by grace, the Spirit of God got hold of us and shook us and brought us to a halt and enabled us to grasp our position and to see our foolishness and our sin and to turn to Christ and know him and have his salvation and transforming power. We too were in this position. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, rejectors of Christ and his word. The stone, well, Christ has already been the stone. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. The stone which the builders disallowed, rejected, repudiated, the same is made the head of the corner. Now, while this is a negative observation, it also buttresses, supports, and feeds the understanding of Christ as worthy of all honor, because he is the stone. Mentioned in verse 6, again, quoted from the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, and the word here is precious, in verse 6. In Isaiah, it isn't precious. The word in the original quotation is tried. That's interesting. In Peter's quotation, it's precious. What's the connection between the words of Isaiah in the prophecy, this great cornerstone who is Christ, who is coming, is elect and chosen, that is, and tried. What's that got to do with precious? Well, the idea is 
The Hebrew word is translated quite rightly in the Old Testament, tried, tested in that sense. This stone comes through the test. It is perfect and it endures. And whatever the test to which it was subjected, the stone which is used for the foundation comes through. And so its qualities are indicated. And so Peter moves the word into the area of honorable and precious, which is reasonable and logical. But it's useful to know that the quotation originally was tried and how closely that applies to Christ. I lay in Zion the chief cornerstone, elect, tried. Yes, he was tried on Calvary's cross and by all the humiliation beforehand and the constant efforts at his assassination or arrest. And then it came to the moment where he allowed this to take place and he permitted himself to be arrested as though he were weak so that he would go according to the plan of God to Calvary's cross to suffer and to die and there God the Father would put upon him all the punishment of all who would be saved through the history of the world all who would be forgiven and at the same time the devil and his hosts attacked him ferociously on Calvary's cross. A chief cornerstone, elect and tried. And he was tried. And he rose from the dead, triumphant. He came through because he was God as well as man. And he suffered the eternal weight of punishment for sin and came through. And he rose and ascended into heaven and eternally now rules. And through the Christian age, he calls out his people and works in their hearts by his spirit. You see, the early church, for all the intense nationalism of that generation of Jewish people, the hostility of the Jews, the hostility, hostility of the Roman power, the Christian church comes through and multiplies amazingly, staggeringly, and spreads throughout the known world. A tried stone that comes through. How much that word tried applies. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious, honourable, worthy of all praise, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the so-called builders, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, supposed to be the upbuilders of Israel, the stone which they repudiated, brought them down. It became to them not a foundation stone, but a stumbling stone, something that you trip over and you fall headlong. It broke them. They repudiated Christ, and it broke them. And in AD 70, the priesthood and Jerusalem was destroyed by the invading Roman army.
and has never been raised up since. Unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offence, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Now this is not my purpose this morning, but I'd like just to say a word about that. Whereunto also they were appointed. Appointed may be slightly strong. The word appointed has certain content in it which isn't in the Greek. The Greek is set, whereunto also they were set, placed down, set. Yes, there's a considerable amount of predestination in that, but appointed is probably a little strong, and I'll explain what I mean. Here are those who repudiate Christ, which once included all of us, and reject him, and spurn him. Now what does the scripture here say? Does it say they were appointed to that, as though God elects those who will be saved, and he also elects to damnation those who would be lost. Now, a lot of people think like this. They think, well, if God elects a great host to salvation, to overrule in their lives and to bring them, them to him, if he elects this person to salvation, it follows that he must elect that person to damnation and to hell. Now, that's our simple reasoning. And some people insist on reasoning like this. As you know, that's how I see it. I'm a black and white thinker, as it were. That's the old saying. I want things sharply set out. If he elects him to salvation and this one is lost, then he's elected him to damnation. But that's not the right way to look at it. God elects to salvation all those who are saved. To be saved wasn't our initiative. It wasn't our smart decision. It wasn't our clever and better response to the message of the gospel. We were all lost and condemned. It's a mighty act of intervening, overruling grace that convicts our hearts and opens our minds and bends our wills. It's called regeneration. So that our ears are open to the gospel and we're moved at what God has done in Christ and we run to him for salvation and grace. Yes, it's all of God. What about the lost? Are they then not in exactly the same way chosen to damnation, chosen to eternal loss? Well, you mustn't put it quite like that because the scripture also teaches that God does not desire the death of a sinner. 
The heart of God is indescribably kind. He is an eternally just God and he will punish the lost. It means simply this, that in the case of those who are not saved by grace, God has not chosen to intervene. And therefore, things will take their course and they will be judged according to their choice. They will be subject to the fall of man, the whole human race fell in Adam and rejected the rule of God. And that is endorsed by every one of us as an individual. We have free will, but it only goes one way. Sadly, every human being chooses not to have God. That is the state of human sin. We will not have him. We will not listen to him. We will not obey him. We will not respond to the gospel. Doesn't it make us feel so utterly and entirely grateful to God that God has intervened and overruled in the case of millions and millions of people, including us, and brought us away from our determined choice to see our need and to come to him. We owe it all to him. But the others don't think in terms of God has elected him to salvation. Think more in terms of God has left the unsaved to their choice. And therefore, their destiny is set. It's placed. It's inevitable. And that's the meaning of the word here. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. The gospel is hated. Even to them which stumble at the word, trip over it. Being disobedient, whereunto also they were set. Yes, God permitted it. They were set. When people say to you, don't we have free will? No, not really. We do in a sense. But the trouble is that every human being born exercises that so-called free will against God. And the saved require divine intervention to deliver them from that. I'm sorry to take so long on that. You can't oversimplify the works of God. No, no. If he's elected to salvation, he must be personally elected to damnation. That's human crass oversimplification. God has not intervened. God has left the lost to the inevitable course of the rejection of God. Just leave it at that, friends, and preserve in your minds the mighty heart of the love of God. But I move on to verse 9. And we're going so slowly. Here's another great benefit. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, 
a chosen generation. The word generation, uh, the modern versions abandon it and go for uh, synonyms and other words, but generation is a good word. The picture here is of a, a man, a kind of patriarch of old, and his first generation of children. Well, they're his children. He trains them personally, and they are his family in the wider household, in the small holding, in the land he holds, and so on. Ye are a chosen generation. You're in the family of God. You're given status. So the second great benefit is status. The status of royalty. More than human, earthly royalty. You're not made God. You're not infused with divine properties. You're not related to God in being like him but you're drawn into his intimate family of saved human beings, saved souls. You're a generation, immediate family of God. And what status that has. Think back to ancient times when a prosperous family with a lot of land which produced great crops and was a force for benevolence in the area and perhaps the head of the family was a magistrate in the city gate, and so on. Well, it was something to be a member of that family with its privileges and with its influence. Well, that's the illustration here. Ye are a chosen generation, the family of God. And that, a number of things follow, and in verse 9 you have them. A third heading a royal priesthood. We've seen the word priest before in this chapter. A priest is one who represents God to man and represents man to God. A priest is one who stands between. He proclaims the message of God to human beings and he pleads to God for human beings. He has a two-way ministry. And you're not only a chosen generation, but a royal priesthood, directly in touch with the Father, working for him. A priesthood of all believers. Well, are we representing God to man? In your family? In your marriage, it works both ways, husband to wife, wife to husband. Do you say, small as I am, I represent God to my wife, I represent God to my husband, I represent God to my children, and my behavior must always recognize that. I'm a representative of my heavenly Father, and I pray for those to whom I represent God and I plead with God on their behalf. We often say every act of witness must be accompanied by a prayer. Otherwise you're not exercising that two-way priesthood. 
you're representing God to man, but you're not representing uh, man, to, to, man to God in petition, in intercession, in prayer. You're a priest. It must be both ways. A royal priesthood. And we could apply more in that connection. It's proclamation and it's prayer. And holy nation. It's back to the idea of nation. But think of the illustration here. This is a tremendous blessing to be part of this holy nation. Well, you were nomads, wandering. You were on your own before you were saved. You lived for yourself. Of course, you were in a family, you were in a community, but very largely you lived for yourself. You lived by your wits, as it were. You were a vagabond, all just an individual. What do people think of me? How do I appear? How will I get on? How much money will I earn? In my family, in my marriage, is it to my advantage? Are they acting against me? You're an individual. And you're fighting your corner all the time. You're number one. You run your own life. But now you're no longer just an individual. You are an individual before God. And you have your own personal walk and relationship with him as a Christian. But you're also member of the family of God. So you don't think of yourself so much as an individual. You say, what is my role? What is my part? What is my contribution? What should I be learning from the family? How should I be fitting? So we should all be church members. The illustration running here is a temple building with a great foundation stone. And all the stones are joined to each other and interlock and support each other. Each one plays a vital part in the structure. And that is the idea of an holy nation. God has determined that a company of people called a church in any particular community or area should be his representatives should show forth his praises, should speak of Christ, and their behavior together counts powerfully for a testimony. You're a holy nation, and you've got a language, the language of faith. With fellow Christians, you have the same nation, you speak the same language, it's Bible language, you can talk about doctrines, you can talk about Christ, you can talk about your spiritual experiences. The worldling doesn't know what you're talking about. He doesn't have this language. But you have a special language of understanding between you all. And you have order, too. You're a member of a church, a holy nation, part of the church universal. But as a member of that church, there's order which God has given. Certain officers to proclaim the word and to exercise unity and bring everyone together in the service of the Lord. And you respect that. Your, your people of Christ, people of the book, of the word of God, 
people of the church working with others. This is, this is a difficulty today because today's culture is highly individualistic and highly democratic. Well, we like democracy and that's a good thing, but it can be overdone. And it is highly democratic and, you know, it's quite interesting. In the pandemic of just a few years ago, how should a church conduct itself? Uh, our forebears would say that uh, so long as there isn't singling out or persecution, well, we have to uh, obey the civil magistrate if something is being enacted for the good of all. So yes, we observed lockdown and all the rest of it. But here and there, there'll be a discordant voice. And an individual will say, well, just a minute, just a minute. You're reading from Romans and from uh, the Apostle Peter and various other people in the scripture, giving direction and from Christ about uh, our attitude to civil authorities. But shouldn't we discuss this? Don't we all have a say? Shouldn't we vote about this and discuss what we do and what we don't do? And suddenly you find this uh, individualism and freedom of choice to an extreme degree. And my personal viewpoint and liberty is coming into the church and taking away the rule of the word and the principles that govern and guide us. That's something to be watched today. We're people of Christ, people of the word, people of the church. We love its order and its communal discipline under the word of God, taking these directions from scripture. These are tremendous blessings to us. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people. That's a strange word, a peculiar people. The King James translators were choosing a word which meant, roughly speaking, a special people. But it translates a difficult uh, Greek term which essentially means a purchased people. But more than that, it means uh, purchased as a special possession, a special purchase. Have you got a special purchase at the moment? You've got all kinds of expenses. But there's one thing that you perhaps need as a family or whatever, and that's for the time being your special purchase, which you're saving for, which is the most important thing to you. And that's the idea behind this word. A specially purchased people for God. God had his mind on millions of people who he would save from their folly and from their sin. And Christ would pay for them and suffer and die for them. And they would be his treasured, special possession. And the Apostle Peter means to put that across in this verse here. A peculiar people, a special possession by the Lord. Is he going to let you down? Of course not. You're his treasured and special possession, which he's gone to great lengths to purchase for himself. 
and for his purposes to shower his love upon you? Aren't you going to serve him with all your heart? Don't you feel you owe him everything? You and I, so insignificant and still ruined by so much sin and odious aspects to us, yet we're his beloved special purchased possession, a peculiar people, that you should, and here is the second part of verse 9, is a great blessing, our function and our commission, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you. Your marginal uh, reference, if you have one, will suggest an alternative word to praises, the virtues. The modern versions go for a word like excellences. That's good. Uh, that you, you should show forth, make known, the virtues, the excellences of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. These things are tremendous to us, friends. Our function, our commission, our calling is to show forth his virtues. That doesn't only mean speaking about him. It means in our lives in our reactions to aggravation and to difficulties and to hostility, in everything that's about us, we're showing forth his virtues, his excellences. We're saying to people around us and to our family and spouses, he's changed me. And I desire to show forth the excellences that he's put within me. The praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. And our time is almost out, so I'll just look at verse 10 and come to a last uh, heading, if you like, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The idea behind this verse is that we are a people being shaped because the illustration goes back to the wilderness journeys when the people were first called the people of God and they were on a journey a pilgrimage if you like leading to Canaan leading to the promised land and on that journey the hope was and the purpose was they would be shaped they would be built up in dependency upon God with the provision of the manna and the water. They would be advanced. There would be difficult lessons to learn. There would be rebellions among them which would be judged by God. But God would be preparing and shaping a people along the journey. Very few entered into the promised land. But the whole idea was a people under God's training, and that's really in this verse, which in time past were not a people. Again, the idea you were just nomads, you were anybodies. But now you're the people of God. You're in his care and under his direction. 
and under his influence and shaping. Ephesians 4 verses 15 and 16 apply that wonderful passage of the shaping of the body of Christ, which had not obtained mercy, and the word mercy includes grace and love, but now have obtained mercy. And this is tremendous concept to understand and a great blessing in the Christian life. We are a people under training, fashioning, shaping all the time. We are supposed to be better than the we were last year as individuals and as a church. We're supposed to have learned lessons and remembered them, repented of certain sins and left them behind. Certain virtues becoming apparent, things being realized by us, attitudes being changed, views being changed, self-control being deepened. We're like athletes in the hand of an expert coach. They bet the coach better make it, it, the athlete better, or he's wasting his time. And so with us, we're the people of God being advanced as if on a journey and shaped and growing and advancing. And that should be in every life. You should be able to look back and say, 10 years ago, I did not have the self-control which God has enabled me to exercise and given to me. And I must hold on to that for all I'm worth and pray often. It's not a matter of pride. It's a matter of valuing and treasuring and maintaining and praying for. But you should be looking back at these things. I can see I've been given victory over certain sins and I must hold that. Certain attitudes. And as a church, we're working better and better together for the Lord and praying more. We're being shaped and fashioned. These are glorious things, dear friends. We have a supreme Lord. We have royal status and dignity with the Lord. We have significance given to us. Priests, we have a function given to us to show forth his virtues, his excellences. And we're, so we're commissioned and we're being crafted and shaped every day, every week, every month that goes by. And Peter gets them all in under the inspiration of God in this passage. And I invite you to read it privately and carefully and see them all, one after the other, unfolded in the framework of the passage given by the Spirit of God. Dear friends, we're, as Philip Doddridge wrote years ago, Zion, Jehovah's portion and delight, graven on his hands and hourly in his sight. Let's live according to that. We'll close our thinking.